We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, and if you don't, let me invite you to use one of our pew Bibles. I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. We've been going through the story of the Bible, and we've been doing it in conjunction with our CPC Kids program, in which each week we look at a significant story or passage of Scripture, and we're trying to connect all of these things together and understand, well, what is the larger story of the Bible? And so we've made it through the Old Testament, and now we are in the New Testament. The last couple of weeks we looked at the Gospel of Luke. This morning we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And that's kind of an interesting thing that we actually have Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, Mark, and John. We have four different gospel accounts. Have you ever thought about why that is? Like, why not just one gospel account of the life, the teaching, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus? Why is it that we have four different gospel accounts, each one inspired by the Holy Spirit, authoritative and binding on you and me as the people of God? Why not just one gospel Well, we have four different Gospels because each one of them represents a unique portrait or picture of Jesus. Each Gospel writer focuses on specific things and has a very particular story to tell and certain theological themes and truths which they are going to emphasize. When we looked at Luke's Gospel, we said that Luke was writing to the Gentile audience and that he was writing trying to put together an orderly Um, a compilation of the life and the teachings of Jesus so that Theophilus could have certainty about Jesus as the Messiah. Now, Mark is probably the first gospel that was written in history. It's the shortest. And in it, Jesus is all action. Mark focuses on Jesus as a servant, and his focus is primarily on what Jesus does as opposed to what Jesus is teaching. Now, Luke was writing to Gentiles, and we saw that his emphasis in writing about the birth of Christ was to talk about Caesar Augustus, which would have been the name that his Gentile audience would have immediately recognized. But Matthew takes a different approach. Now, Matthew is the first gospel in our English New Testaments, and it's referred to sometimes as the gospel of the Messiah. And that just means the gospel of God's chosen one. Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels and the one that's most closely linked to the Old Testament and to the specific prophecies that were given to the people of Israel concerning the Messiah and his coming to bring salvation to the people of God. That's why Matthew has the discernment on the mount. It's these expanded portions of God's teaching. Jesus is taking really the Ten Commandments and he's expanding on it and he's telling the people, this is what it looks like. This is what it means to be the people of God in the kingdom of God. So throughout Matthew's gospel, there's kind of one dominant overarching theme. You could summarize it this way. Promise and fulfillment. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise because what we've seen over the last several months is that all the way back in the very beginning of the Bible, all the way back even to Genesis chapter 3, God is a covenant making. That is to say that God makes certain commitments. God makes certain promises. He pledges himself to people in a certain kind of way and that he keeps those promises. So this large overarching theme in the backdrop of Matthew's gospel is also the same 
overarching theme throughout all of the scripture, and especially in the Old Testament where the Messiah is prophesied, where these promises are given about his life, his birth, his death. It's the promises in the Hebrew scripture that God will bring deliverance and salvation to his people. But not only to the people of Israel, but through the nation of Israel, God will bless the whole world. So this promise that we see in the Old Testament is now being fulfilled in Matthew's gospel in the person of Jesus. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, notice how Matthew begins his gospel. He begins it with a genealogy. It it starts like this in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then what follows is a genealogy of 41 generations. Now for most of us, We have very little interest in genealogies because in the Western world, what really matters is who I am and the person that I'm becoming. And so we don't focus a whole lot of attention on the past and where it is that we came from and who it is that we come from. I'll give you an example. This week, I got a letter in the mail and it was from one of my dad's high school classmates. And he began to tell us stories about what our dad was like as a student in high school. When I read it, I was amazed because it sounded like he was writing about a totally different person, someone I didn't even know. When I talked to my sister, I asked her, did you read the letter that Johnny Ferguson wrote? And she said, yeah. She said it was like he was writing about an entirely different person. I said, that's the exact same way I felt. See, my dad didn't talk about what he was like in high school, and we didn't care enough to ask. Because what was important to me was what lay ahead, what my future looked like, the kind of person I was going to become. But not for Matthew and not for the readers of his gospel. They would have considered the opening of this gospel to be the most exciting introduction they had ever heard. The genealogy introduces Jesus as the son of Abraham, the son of David, which means he comes from the most important people in the story of the Bible. Remember, we talked about promise fulfillment. Abraham is the father of faith. He's one of the men who receives one of these promises from God. God appears to Abram and he says to him, I want you to leave your homeland and I want you to go to this place that I would show you. So God makes this promise. God enters into this covenant with Abraham and he promises to make him the father of a mighty nation, to give to him a promised land that you and I know will ultimately be the land of Canaan. And then through his descendants, The whole world will be blessed. If you want to read this, you can flip over to Genesis chapter 12. The first three verses and we read. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Hundreds, thousands of years ago, God makes a promise to this man named Abram. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the father of mighty nation. I'm going to give you a promised land. And then through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. Now flip over to Matthew chapter 28, at the end of Matthew's gospel. We see the promises in Genesis 12. Now listen to what Jesus says in verse 16 as he speaks to his disciples. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, To which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So God promises Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a mighty nation. I'm going to give you a promised land. And then through your descendants, the nations, the whole world will be blessed. At the end of his life, when Jesus appears to his disciple, following his resurrection, this is what he says to him. He said, I want you to go into the world and I want you to make disciples of all nations. So God makes a promise in Genesis 12. He fulfills that promise in the life, the teaching, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And he continues to fulfill that promise through the church. But Jesus isn't just connected to Abram. He's connected to David. David was a man who's common to you and to me. We know his story. He's the king of Israel, but he's also guilty of adultery and of murder. And yet he's called a man after God's own heart. Because of his unwavering love towards God and because of the way that he served God and the nation of Israel, God promised to David certain things. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7. God's saying the promised Messiah, the eternal king, will become from your house, from the house of David. So there are these connections that Jesus has with Abraham, with David. Connections like David is anointed even while Israel has a king on the throne. The same way that we're going to see in the life of Jesus. Israel has a king. His name is Herod. In the time of David, David was anointed by the prophet. There was a king and his name was Saul. David delivers his people. He provides salvation. It's a different kind of salvation than Jesus offers to you and me. But it's a parallel to the salvation that the Messiah, the true Messiah, brings. David delivers. If you remember that story, he delivers the king, the king's armies, and all the people of Israel from their enemies, the Philistines. He gives to them the victory when he defeats their champion, Goliath. So he conquers the people of God's enemies. But he also restores the presence of God to the people of God. Now David establishes a capital city in Jerusalem. And he strategically does it so that it would unite the tribes of Israel. Under Saul, the worship of the people of God have suffered greatly. It was in decline. Saul disobeyed the Lord's word. The word that had been directed to him through the prophet Samuel. The Ark of the Covenant that represented the presence of God in the midst of the people of God had been lost. and had not been returned to its rightful place in the tabernacle. Things continue to get worse. Saul is not a good king, and so the nation suffers as such. And rather than seeking to worship the one true God, Saul leads the people to seek the wisdom of the witch of Endor. But David has a heart for God. And so he longs for the nation of Israel to be renewed in the worship of the one true God, to follow Yahweh with all their hearts, to love him with all their heart, their mind, their soul and strength. And so to do that, he wants to do something. He wants to go and to reclaim the ark and to return it to this capital city, Jerusalem, as a sign, as a visible, physical thing that the people of God could see that God is back with his people. The presence of God is in the midst of the people of God. He does that. The Ark of the Covenant is returned. 
Jesus, in the same way, makes it possible for the presence of God to be accessible to you and to me this morning. He said to himself, to his disciples, no one comes to the Father except through me. So there's a lot going on in the genealogy that we read about in Matthew chapter 1. But most importantly, what we see is that God has been. God is right now in the present, and God will continue to be in the future a God that makes promises and a God that keeps those promises. So now we see the birth of Jesus, and we get to Matthew chapter 2, a passage that's familiar to us all, in which we read about these men named the Magi. Now the Magi were kind of this class of astronomers, astrologers, philosophers, and theologians. They kind of were a mix of all these different things. We're told that they came from an area of Persia, from the east, a place that you and I now in modern day would refer to as Iraq and Iran. We don't know how, but what we do know is that these men identified a star and they began to follow it. They understood the significance of this star meant that there had been the birth of a king. And so they followed this star to Jerusalem. Now, if you were looking for the birth of a king, where is it that you would go? You'd go to a palace. If you're looking for the birth of a king, you would go to a palace. So that's exactly what they do. They go to the palace looking for this newborn king, but they do not find him. Instead, they find a king. It's King Herod. Now, Herod was as evil and as wicked as you could possibly get. He was a puppet king of Rome. And so in verse 2, the Magi say to him, they recognize that he's not the king that's being identified by this astrological event. And so they say to the king, to King Herod, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come now to worship him. It's about the worst possible thing they could have said. That's why in verse 3, you read this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Why was he troubled? Because Herod was about one thing. Herod was about Herod and about his rule and his reign on the throne. It's like Tom Petty says, it's good to be the king. So when Herod hears this news, he recognizes it for what it is. It is a threat to his power and his authority. But not only is Herod troubled, but his advisors, his friends are troubled as well. Why? Because if you can't be the king, the next best thing is to be really good friends with the king. And they recognize this for what it is. It's a threat. He takes it as a direct threat against his authority. So Herod does what Herod does. He calls the religious leaders, the priests and the scribes, to tell him about the prophecies, about where a king would be born. And they find for him one in the scriptures. We read it every year around the Christmas season. It comes from the book of Micah. And we read, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, who are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is shepherd my people Israel. So Herod assembles all the religious leaders, and he asks for them, I want to know about this prophecy. I want to know where this one who's been born, the king of Jews, is supposed to be born. He finds out that it's Bethlehem. And so then he assembles the Magi in a secret meeting and he gets them to tell them where the, first, where the star first appeared. And then, in a move, I think, of strategy, he sends them off to find this baby. Rather than wasting his time, his money, his resources, he sends the Magi off to find this child. 
so that once they find this child, they can send word to him and that he might come and find the baby. Everybody loves babies. I don't know if you saw the picture of Holden this week, but who could be upset by the news of a baby? I mean, who's ever looked at a baby and thought, this is bad news? There's just something about babies. We're drawn to them. We love them. Katie and Neil were blessed with a beautiful boy named Holden. When I saw the picture, I mean, my heart just, just lit up with excitement. Why? Because babies aren't bad news. N.T. Wright, who's a bishop in the Church of England, he's a, a writer and a theologian. He was preaching a big Christmas service, and there was a historian there. And this historian was a skeptic towards the Christian faith, but his family had persuaded him to attend this service. And afterwards, he goes up to N.T. Wright following the sermon, and he says, I figured out why it is that people like Christmas. And he Wright said, really? I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. He says, it's because a baby threatens no one. So the whole thing is a happy event, which means nothing at all. Well, what we read in Matthew chapter 2 is that Herod didn't see this as one big happy event. He saw it for what it was. It was a threat. Herod's not about to let his throne be taken so we read about his plan in verse 16 through 18. In which he is willing to put to death lots of innocent lives in order to protect his claim to the throne. It reminds me of a quote from the Game of Thrones. In which Cersei and Eddard Stark are in the garden and they're talking. And she says this, she says, when you play the Game of Thrones, you either win or you die. But there is no middle ground. And that was true in Westeros and it's true here in Israel. Herod's no fool. He wanted the Magi to find the baby so that he didn't waste his time or his resources. And when the baby was found, he could execute him. That's at the heart of Herod's plan. He would take care of the threat to his throne. He was willing to slaughter innocent lives in order to preserve his position as king on the throne. So the Magi leave Herod's palace. The star appears before them. It leads them towards Bethlehem. They rejoice because they're about to be in the presence of the one who's been born king of the Jews. The star moves ahead and it finally stops over the house where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are staying. They enter the house. They see the child and we're told they fall down. They worship him. Why? Because they understood that this was the true king. The one with the real authority, the one that God had chosen, and they owed him worship and respect. So real quickly, I want us to look at the Magi. They had one purpose, one thing that was driving him, that was to worship the one who's been born king of the Jews. They didn't know it was Jesus the way that you and I did. They didn't understand all the details, but they were willing to engage in a journey that was hundreds, if not a thousand miles long. In order to find this one who had been born the king of the Jews, that they might worship him. And then they had to make that same journey back home. They came for one reason, to worship the king. So why are you here this morning? Is it just because this is what you do? This is the way you were raised or you didn't have anything better to do? And you just thought, well, hey, I'll go and join CPC on a Sunday morning. Is it because you want to be entertained? Is it because you want to be encouraged? Is it because you want to be, feel better about yourself? Is it because you want some direction? Why are you here this morning? Are you here simply because God is worthy? Worthy of your worship. Worthy of our worship. And that is simply enough.
See, for the Magi, that was enough. They're a picture for us of what worship looks like. It's the devotion that they bring to this child that we bring to Jesus. We think about worship and we think about all kinds of categories. It's the kind of music that we sing or it's the, you know, the genre of music that we like. We don't like traditional hymns. We like more contemporary stuff. Or we like traditional hymns. We don't like more contemporary stuff. We stay away from the church when we think that maybe the sermon is not going to be as exciting as it we would hope. And the problem with that is that we make all of our decisions about worship based on us. What we like. What we're looking for. And we make worship a commodity, something to consume, something that's done for us. But worship isn't about you. Worship isn't about me. See, most of the time we approach worship backwards. Worship is something that we do. It's a service that we offer when we sing and we pray prayers and we submit ourselves to the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. And these wise men from the East Even though they weren't steeped in Christian theology, they understood that worship is something we give to the king. I heard a story about a man who's complaining about the service at his church. And he said to a friend of his, he said, I didn't get much out of the worship today. And when his friend remarked to him, he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I never realized we were worshiping you. (laughs) See, worship is not about you and about me and what we get out of it. See, that's the point. We're not worshiping ourselves, but oftentimes that's what we do. We make worship all about us when it's really all about Jesus. When it comes down to it, that's what matters. What he takes delight in. What he is blessed by. What he has commanded as acceptable for the people of God to engage in during worship. First Chronicles says, ascribe to the Lord, to the Lord, the glory due his name. Bring an offering, come before him, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Nehemiah chapter nine, you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. See, God does not need your worship. All creation worships God. You need to worship. You and I need to be reminded every single week how wonderful and glorious and gracious and merciful and beautiful God is. When we worship, we're joining in with all of heaven and God's creation to praise him, to recognize the truth that he is God. Worship is a lifestyle. It's not just something we do on Sundays, but it's the attitudes of our heart. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So it's the way we live our lives, the value that we place on who God is. It's communicated through the actions that we undertake, the way we spend our time, our money. When we gather together as the people of God, as we're commanded to do, this is an important time. Because we experience things that we cannot experience on our own as individuals. We're encouraged when we're struggling. We are the encouragement that others who are struggling need. 
That's why it matters that you are here regularly gathered together with the people of God for corporate worship. We're an encouragement to each other. We were never intended to live the Christian life as spiritual lone rangers. We aren't free agents to get to do the Christian life any way we choose. That's why corporate worship matters. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism that makes up our Constitution, we read this, that humanity's chief end is to glorify God and to, to enjoy Him forever. That's the goal. That's why God made us, is that we would glorify Him, and in glorifying, we would enjoy Him. But the problem is that you and I are just little Herods. You and I see Jesus and His rule and His reign, His claims over our lives, as threats to our own little kingdoms. What's interesting is that Herod's desperately trying to hold on to the throne. But here's the thing. Even as all this is taking place, Herod is slowly dying inside. Within three years of the birth of Jesus, Herod was dead, and he died what we believe is a pretty significant and painful death. So he's trying to hold on to this kingdom. He's willing to sacrifice the lives of innocent children in order to hold on to this kingdom. And in less than three years, it's going to be taken from him anyway. So the question that you and I face this morning... It's the same question that Herod faced. We've heard the news that a king has been born. And that king, he grows up and becomes the Messiah, the chosen savior of God's people. And that king can demand and ask of you, his servant, and me, his servant, anything he wishes. But that's scary. Because like Herod, we want to be the king. We want to call the shots. We want to tell everybody else what to do. We want to focus on our little kingdom and the authority which we possess. And Jesus is a threat to that. So we cling to our little kingdoms. Or will we repent and give up our illegitimate claims to the throne and embrace the one true king? The one whose kingdom will last forever. That's the question Matthew 2 leaves us with this morning. Will we bow before the one true king and accept his rule and reign over us? There's no way that you'll ever give up your claims to the kingdom unless you've seen and been captivated by the vision of a better kingdom. There's a Scottish preacher. He wrote a paper called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he talks about the only way to get rid of something that your heart loves. And your heart loves something. Every single one of us this morning loves something. It may be self, or it may be something else, or it might be Jesus. But the only way you can get rid of that thing that your heart loves is that you must have that affection expelled by a better, a greater, a more powerful affection. Think about it. Have you ever wanted a new car? That's all that you could think about. I just want this specific car. And I want it in this color. And I want it just like this. And then a new model comes out. And all of a sudden, the affection that you had for that car is greatly diminished because you found something better to replace it. So the only way that you and I are ever going to be free from the love of our own kingdom is for us to be captivated with a love for God's kingdom. It's only when you're willing to submit to the one true king, that you'll be free and I'll be free of living our lives like little Herods. Desperately 
clinging, trying to hold on to our power, our authority. And you really see him. You really see Jesus as he truly is. You'll respond the way the Magi did. And you'll worship him. And you'll gladly give up any claims to any kingdom that you think you have in order that you might become a servant in his kingdom. The one true king was announced by angels. He was worshipped by shepherds and the wise men. He was loved by sinners. And he was ultimately crucified, buried, and then raised from the dead. He now sits at the right hand of God. And he will one day come. And it can be good news that the king is coming. Or if you're, in, you're his enemy, it'll be terrible news. Because you'll face his judgment. So this morning, will you repent and give up your illegitimate claims to the throne and embrace the one true king? Let's pray.